We are in Judges chapter 16 tonight, continuing the story, really completing the story tonight of Samson. Samson's the final judge in the book of Judges. Uh, the rest of the book uh, really just uh, gathers together some stories that show us how bad things had gotten by the end of this period. And like so many stories that we've seen, like so many uh, deliverers, judges that we've seen so far tonight, as we read the story of Samson and Delilah, we're going again to feel perhaps like we're in the middle of a soap opera. Um, it's funny uh, that something that can sometimes leave you feeling so slimy is called a soap opera, but nonetheless, that's what they're called. And that's what this story feels like when you read it if you put yourself in the midst of it and realize that apart from a few references to God, um, this is the kind of story that lots of people enjoy and think is wonderful. It's really not that wonderful, uh, but it is like a soap opera. Uh, just for fun tonight, I thought we could think of Samson as the young and the restless. That's really what he is, and he lives his life like so many of those people that are idolized by our culture on the television. It's an ugly story, but it's a true story, and it's one that I hope we can learn from. So let me read to you the story of Samson the Young and the Restless in Judges 16. Now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. When it was told to the Gazites, saying, Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. And they kept silent all night, saying, let us wait until morning light, then we will kill him. Now Samson lay until midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the city gate and the two posts and pulled them up along with the bars. Then he put them on his shoulders and carried them up to the top of the mountain, which is opposite Hebron. After this, it came about that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Entice him and see where his great strength lies and how we may overpower him that we may bind him to afflict him. Then we will each give you eleven hundred pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength is and how you may be bound to afflict you. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh cords that have not been dried, then I will become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh cords that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in wait in an inner room, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the cords as a string of toe snaps when it touches fire, so his strength was not discovered. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have deceived me and told me lies. Now please tell me how you may be bound. He said to her, if they bind me tightly with new ropes which have not been used, then I will become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. For the men were lying in wait in the inner room, but he snapped the ropes from his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Up to now you have deceived me and told me lies. Tell me how you may be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my hair with the web and fasten it with a pin, then I will become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his hair and wove them into the web. And she fastened it with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled out the pin of the loom and the web. 
Then she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You've deceived me these three times and have not told me where your great strength is. It came about when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him that his soul was annoyed to death. So he told her all that was in his heart and said to her, a razor has never come on my head, for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaved, then my strength will leave me and I will become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all that was in his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up once more, for he has told me all that is in his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his hair. Then she began to afflict him and his strength left him. She said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Then the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and they brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze chains and he was a grinder in the prison. However, the hair of his head began to grow again after it was shaved off. Now the lords of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. For they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, our God has given our enemy into our hands, even the destroyer of our country who has slain many of us. It so happened that when they were in high spirits that they said, call for Samson that he may amuse us. So they called for Samson from the prison and he entertained them and they made him stand between the pillars. Then Samson said to the boy who was holding his hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women and all the lords of the Philistines were there. And about 3000 men and women were on the roof looking on while Samson was amusing them. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me just this time, O Lord, that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and braced himself against them, the one with his right hand and the other with his left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bent with all his might so that the house fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed in his life. Then his brothers and all his father's household came down, took him, brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtael in the tomb of Manoah, his father. Thus, he had judged Israel 20 years. It is a, an ugly story, somewhat of an entertaining story. But when you're looking at it from God's perspective, an ugly story and much like a soap opera, I think. And we're going to divide it like we've done in several of our looks at these judges into several episodes, five of them, in fact, just walking through the story and noticing some things together. And I hope that each of these episodes will have lessons of its own to teach us so that if we took one individually, we would learn something. But I hope all of them are going to drive to the one main final point that we're going to conclude with tonight. So five episodes. The first is uh, entitled, I've entitled it, A Besetting Sin. A Besetting Sin, verses 1 through 3. Samson's problems all stemmed back to one besetting sin. 
And we see it in verse 1. Now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. He went to Gaza, he saw a harlot, and he went into her. It's a reminder here in the middle of his story that if you read in either direction from chapter 16, verse 1, you see that Samson had a constant problem with women. Back in chapter 14, verse 1, we saw that he had a problem with a a Timnite woman, a young girl that he saw in the Philistine area that he fell in love with and had to have. And then here in chapter 16, verse 1, he has a problem with another woman, a harlot. And then in verse 4, we're going to see at length, he has a problem with a third woman, Delilah of Sorek. He had a problem with women. But it wasn't simply a problem of Samson being attracted to women. That's normal and that's natural and God-given. The problem was more than that. First of all, it was the kind of women that he was attracted to. Each and every one of these three women was an unbeliever, a Philistine. The woman from Timnah was a Philistine. That's a Philistine city. The woman in Gaza here in chapter 16 was a Philistine, not only a harlot, but an unbeliever, obviously. And then Delilah of Sorek was also a Philistine. Continually attracted to women that he shouldn't have even been thinking about. And not only that, uh, his attraction to women led him not only to be attracted to the wrong kind of women, but then to the wrong kind of behavior. First, with the woman from Timnah, he married her against the law of God, which said you shall not marry the women from the surrounding countries lest they lead you astray and you worship their gods. And he married her against the will of his parents. You remember that his parents said, why don't you marry a good, nice girl from Israel? And he said, no, you go get her for me. And then his attraction to this harlot obviously led him to engage in prostitution and then his attraction to Delilah later on in this chapter led him to engage in what we would call shacking up he lived with Delilah never married her and just lived with her sexually as though she was his wife but never made any real marriage commitment to her so he had a problem with the wrong kind of women that led him to the wrong kind of behavior but I want you to notice that the problem really all began with his eyes that was the real issue Go back to chapter 14 and read verses 1 through 3 with me. And notice Samson's eyes. Then Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore get her for me as a wife. Then his father and his mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she looks good to me. It doesn't say he went down to Timnah and met a woman. It says he went down to Timnah and saw a woman. It emphasizes it three times. She looks right to me. She looks good to me. And the same thing here in chapter 16, verse 1. Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there. His problem was a problem of his eyes. The main problem wasn't even what he did with these women, although that was horrible. The problem began with his eyes. The problem began flowing from his heart through his eyes and was called sexual lust. That was Samson's besetting sin. 
And the main point I want to make in showing you that is to say that this one particular besetting sin, this problem of lust, led to almost all of Samson's other problems. His defiance of his parents was because of his lust. His incident with the lion carcass, which he was forbidden to touch, was begun with his lust. Had he not gone down and lusted after the woman in Timnah, he would have never gone back down there and seen the lion on the road and then eventually ended up playing with its carcass. The vengeance that he took on the Philistines with these foxes that he tied tail to tail and burned down their fields began with lust. They'd taken away the object of his lust and he got revenge on them. Here in chapter 16, the reason why he allowed his hair to be cut was a problem of lust. He allowed this woman to be so close to his heart that he gave up his right to call himself a child of God, really. He gave up the one thing that he had held true to, the one thing that he hadn't yet broken in this Nazarite vow that he'd made. He gave it up because of a woman. It's interesting When you read it, you laugh to yourself and say, how in the world would any man hear a woman like this saying, tell me how I can tie you up and bind you and actually give her an answer and not just walk out? How could he do that? This seems crazy. Men do crazy things because of lust, don't they? Ridiculous, foolish things. I saw a study recently uh, that was done that showed what the Bible already teaches in Proverbs, namely that when men are engaged in sexual immorality, they are much, much more likely to blow money and to take high risks with money. So it was with Samson, not with money, but with his life. In addition, we don't know that this is true, but it's possible given what we see with Samson's lust and what we know and see in this woman, Delilah, that all this bit about binding him and tying up for him might have, he thought, had a sexual connotation to it as well. And he got himself into a position where he gave up the one thing that he had held on to in all of the commandments of God, namely his hair. And his problem with lust eventually led to his capture and his humiliation and his death. One sin that spread to many other sins and that caused his eventual demise. That's a besetting sin. A besetting sin is a sin, maybe a particular sin in an individual's life. It doesn't have to be lust or something as obvious as lust, but a particular sin that has a stronger pull on you than other sins do. A particular sin that seems to have a controlling power over your behavior. A particular sin that seems to fuel the fire for other sins. In other words, when you give in to this one thing, everything starts to go with it. That's a besetting sin. And all of us, hopefully we have some of them under control, but all of us have a propensity to one kind of sin, besetting sin, or another. There's something in each of our lives, maybe more than one thing, that comes at us and 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 and seeks to destroy us. I don't know what it is for you, but you think through some questions that I wrote down that might help you put your finger on what the besetting sin in your life might be. Is there a particular sin that consistently causes arguments in your home? Is there a particular sin that consistently keeps you away from God's Word? A particular sin that consistently causes you to miss out on being with God's people? A particular sin that you are extremely touchy about when anyone comes close to mentioning that it might be a problem? A particular sin 
that leads you into tempting locations or behaviors. A particular sin that sucks up a lot of your money and throws it down the drain. A particular sin that you have in your mind spent the most time rationalizing and figuring out ways that it's probably not as bad as it is. A particular sin that you just can't seem to shake. That's a besetting sin. I just want to ask you to think about for yourself if there's a particular, recurring, controlling, besetting sin in your life like there was in Samson's. Because as you're going to see, if you don't deal with it, it will deal with you. John Owen in the 1600s said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And that's very true. And if you have a particular sin that is constantly trying to aim its darts at you and bring you down, you need to identify it. And you need to fight in the spirit against it. How do you do that? Just briefly stepping away from Samson. Well, one is you confess. Stop rationalizing and try to figure out maybe if it's okay. And just confess to the Lord. I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling with this and I can't seem to beat it. First John 1.9 says, If you confess your sins, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. From all unrighteousness. The first step to putting this thing away is to really confess it to the Lord. Not to excuse it, but to confess it and bathe it in the blood of Jesus. Also, to get some accountability about it. There needs to be someone in your life that can ask you about it and can pray for you about it. That's why James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. If you've got a besetting sin and no one else knows about it but you and no one else is praying about it but you, you might as well just go ahead and shoot yourself in the foot because that's what you're going to do again and again and again until you get a brother or sister in Christ who will help you and pray for you. And then the third thing to do in fighting against these things is to remember what Jesus said in John 14:15. It's very simple. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's the best way to overcome sin. Love Jesus. Cultivate a love for Him. Study the Gospel. Study Him in the Scriptures. Look for Him in the Scriptures so that your heart grows deeper and deeper in love with Him. Augustine, you may know the name. St. Augustine, a famous Christian from the early centuries of the church. He's known to us because of all the wonderful things that he wrote about Jesus and about the Gospel. But before he became a Christian, he was just like Samson, the very same besetting sin. He lived with one woman for years and years and years, never married her because he was a slave to lust, had other affairs on the side, and his mother kept hounding him about it and hounding him about it. And finally he got rid of her just to please his mother. She annoyed him to death, apparently like Delilah did to Samson. So he got rid of the woman, and before long, even though he had got rid of this one woman, he had another concubine living with him again. And he says the thing that finally set him free was what he called the expulsive power of a superior affection. Namely, if you love something more than your sin, it will push that sin out of the way. If you love Christ more than your sin, then He will stand by your side in place of that besetting sin. If you love Me, He says, you will keep My commandments. That's the main thing to do. Cultivate a love for Jesus. Samson didn't do any of those things, apparently. He didn't confess that we can tell. He certainly didn't seem to have any accountability. He just did whatever was right in his own eyes. And he didn't seem in most cases, or really in any cases in the story that we have, that he really cultivated a deep love for God. And so he loved 
women, he loved what women could give him more than he loved the Lord in the end. Besetting sin. Secondly, Samson's besetting sin led him to a dangerous woman. A dangerous woman. Now, your besetting sin may not lead you to a dangerous woman, but it will lead you to a dangerous place where you're going to be tempted further and further and further. For Samson, it was a dangerous woman, namely this woman called Delilah. It's interesting when you read verse 3, Samson's superhuman strength is marvelously illustrated for us. He got up in the middle of the night, took the the doors off of their hinges and walked up the hill with them. And these weren't little wooden, you know, particle board doors or the little hollow doors that we have. These were probably iron gates. And he carried them up a mountain. Extreme strength. And yet, by far, the women in his life were by far, I should say, by, the women in his life were by far stronger than even this Samson. And that's on display very clearly in verses 4 and following with Delilah. She is much, much stronger than he is. It's amazing. Think about all throughout his life the power that women had over Samson. First chapter 14, this Timnite woman, you remember he married her and they threw a big party and they invited 30 friends uh, to come and, and be his companions at the party. And he made this little bet with him. If, if I win the bet, then you give me 30 uh, changes of clothes. And if you win the bet, I'll give you 30 changes of clothes. And it's very obvious that he's going to win the bet because he's propounded a riddle to them, which they'll never be able to answer unless Samson himself gives it away. And here it is, this Timnite woman. This young girl probably, because she bothered him seven days in a row and cried and cried and cried, eventually got him to just hand over what would be thousands of dollars worth of clothing. Now, he went and tried to fix that by killing some others and giving their clothing. But the point is made, isn't it? Here's Samson giving in to a woman crying. Big, strong Samson. And this woman gets thousands of dollars out of him. Then, chapter 16, this harlot that we've already spoken about, just by the the simple lure of her bed, keeps him overnight in a city where he knows that he's a wanted man. He knows that they're trying to kill him. That's why he got up in the middle of the night and went out by night. Any person in their right mind would not stay the night in a city like that. But Samson did because of a woman. And Delilah, more than any of them, was stronger than Samson. She sold him into the hands of his enemies and gave him three chances beforehand to realize that that's what she was trying to do. And she still overpowered him in the end. In verses 16 and 17, read it. It came about when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him that his soul was annoyed to death. So he told her all that was in his heart and said to her, A razor has never come on my head, and so on. And he signed his death warrant right there because this woman nagged him day after day after day. Each one of these women was in the end stronger than mighty Samson. And he found himself in constant trouble and eventually dead because of it. Now I want to say to you just by way of of a sidetrack application here that this speaks to something that's very applicable even in our own day. Speaking to someone in our church this week 
about men and their leadership in the home and how uh, when the man goes astray, the family goes astray. But this person wisely said to me, well, you know who we need to be praying for? We need to be praying for the wives because women have a great power over the men that they love. And if the women decide that they're not going to follow God, if the men, women make it difficult for their husbands, then their men, their husbands will very often fall by the wayside. Well, that's what happened with Samson, very clearly and very obvious, obviously. But there's application for us, isn't there? There's application for men here. Indirectly, I'm not going to give any direct application for men except to say if you're a single man, that you need to be very careful about the women that you think about marrying because they do, as you see in Samson's life, have a great power that you don't realize until perhaps it's too late. But I want to apply this specifically to women, first to wives and then to women in general. To you that are wives, I do want to say to you that you have incredible power over your husband. Not in every way, but in some ways, particularly emotionally, you have incredible power over your husband. Most women in the world would hear that and it would make them feel puffed up inside. And if you hear this and initially it makes you feel kind of like, yeah, I do have power, then you need to repent of that in all seriousness. And you need to be sober about it. Because women, by your manipulation, by your covetousness and desire for things, by your bitterness towards other people or towards your husband, by spiritual laxity, by the kind of nagging that was characteristic of Samson's wife and then of Delilah, you can strongly influence your husband and change the way he thinks about his money about his service in the church, about his time with the Lord, about his relationships, about his decision-making. All sorts of things can go haywire because a woman is dragging her husband away. And by the same token, women, if you grant your husband encouragement, if you demonstrate a spirit of generosity, of simplicity, of forgiveness towards others, of zeal for godliness then you can strongly influence your husband again in the way he thinks about his money and his church and his time with the Lord and his relationships and his decision-making. For better or for worse, a wife has a great deal of pull over the way her husband thinks about the world. Let me just give you a couple of examples. If a woman is constantly asking for things or just letting on that what makes her really happy are things... And you know what's going to happen? The money that her husband might be feeling like he should give to some poor family or give to some missionary cause or put away for the children or put away for a rainy day might just go into stuff that will make you happy for a month until you want the next thing. And down the drain the money goes because the wife has that kind of pull over her husband. He's going to eventually buckle just like Samson buckled because she, verse 16, annoyed him to death. On the positive spectrum, though, remember what Peter says in 1 Peter 3 about men who don't love the Lord and how the wives can win them over without a word by their chaste and respectful behavior. When a woman loves the Lord and serves the Lord and honors her husband, it just draws him to the Lord, doesn't it? And so you see, in either direction, women, you can have a great power in your husband's life. That's to be taken seriously, not lightly. Now, women in general, let me say this to all of you. 
women in general have a great power and pull over men in general that they often don't even realize. Notice again that Samson's problem began with what he saw. It began with what he saw in Timnah. It began with what he saw in Gaza. Now, we don't know how the Timnite woman carried herself. We have a good idea how the harlot in Gaza carried herself. But let me say to you that the way that you carry yourself and the way that you dress yourself has a great pull over men that you may not realize. If you realized it, hopefully it might change some of the behaviors. So I want to say to you, women, you need to be asking your husband. If you don't have a husband, you need to be asking some godly lady in the church. Is the way I carry myself, is the way I dress myself going to be a stumbling block to men? Your husband can tell you. If I saw someone wearing what you're wearing, I would be tempted to look at them in ways I shouldn't look at them. They can tell you. And if you're the husband, you need to take it upon yourself, even if they don't ask, to gently encourage. And if you're an older woman in the church, you need to take it upon yourself to gently encourage the younger women to carry themselves with dignity. Because Delilah can bring down Samson in a hurry. And strong as we may think we are men, we are quite weak many times when it comes to the women in our lives. And so women... Take that as a prayer request for yourself and a challenge. So we had a besetting sin. We had a dangerous woman. And then Samson's entanglement with this dangerous woman led him, episode 3, to a misplaced faith. Verse 17. We learn in Hebrews 11.32 that Samson really did have faith of some sort. He is to be considered a man of faith. He's listed there in the Faith Hall of Fame. But we learn when we read his story that it was a weak faith, a shallow faith at best. And in verse 17, a misplaced faith. After Delilah finally nagged him to where he was annoyed to death, and he said, I'm just going to tell her. I'm tired of dealing with this. He told her all that was in his heart in verse 17, and he said this about his strength. A razor has never come on my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I will become weak and be like any other man. Notice that he told her what was in his heart, not necessarily what was accurate. Obviously, he didn't understand what was accurate. Samson assumed that his hair had some sort of magic quality to it. It's clear that he thinks God put the magic in the hair, but it's also clear that he thinks the magic was in the hair. The power was in the hair. And much of the rest of the story is actually told from Samson's perspective. For instance, verse 22 notes that his hair began to grow again. But the real key is not Samson's hair. The real problem was not that Samson's hair was gone. The real problem was, verse 20, that Samson's God was gone. The Lord had departed from him. And God was gone from him, presumably not just because he cut his hair, but because of all of his sinful antics. He had broken all of the vows of the Nazarite and a bunch of other biblical mandates as well. Marrying out of the religion of the Israelites, living with a harlot, going into a prostitute, dishonoring his parents, all that in addition to breaking the Nazarite vow. It was because of all these things that God finally said, Enough! And he left Samson. But Samson just assumed that it was his hair. So Samson was a man of faith, Hebrews 11 tells us, yes. But 
in large measure, his faith was superstitious and it was misplaced. It was a faith that was mostly fixated on a single outward symbol, but it was not a faith that affected all of his life. And the faith that we want is a faith that affects all of our life, not just one single outward religious symbol. But Samson has spiritual ancestors who are alive and well to this day. There are people, lots of people in 2008 who have the same kind of misplaced faith. There's one or two little religious symbols that they hold to very tightly and so they think everything must be okay with me and God's going to bless me as long as I pray my rosary, as long as I've been baptized, as long as I've got my cross jewelry on, as long as I have my statues out in my yard, as long as I'm regular in attendance at church, as long as I do my quiet time every day, I pray and I read the Bible bit every day, it's going to be a good day. That God's going to bless me. And by the same token, if I don't pray or read today, it's like getting my hair cut and now everything's gone sour. Lots of folks think like that. They're looking to God in some form or fashion, but they have a very narrow viewpoint with which they see Him. And they hold on to only one or two little rituals which may or may not even be helpful. Lots of these people couldn't be said couldn't be said of them like it was of Samson that they had some sliver of true faith. There are lots of people whose faith doesn't affect their daily lives. They may read their Bible each morning, read a verse or read the daily bread or, or go to church every week, but it doesn't really affect whether or not they're honest on their taxes. It doesn't affect how hard they work for their employer. It doesn't affect what they choose for their entertainment. It doesn't affect how they treat their parents or how they treat their children. Or, more important and more drastic lots of people have one or two of these little pieces in place but they never get beyond the symbols and actually look to Jesus and there's no real faith but Samson does remind us and this is a note of hope and a note to be gentle with others Samson does remind us that even where misplaced faith is present even where our faith seems so much targeted on the externals and not on God himself, there still may be in some people true faith that is present, however dimly it shines. Richard Sibbs writes about that passage in Isaiah that says of Jesus that he won't crush a bruised weed and he won't snuff out a smoldering wick. And the point he makes is that a wick that is smoldering still has a little bit of light in it. We would look at it and say, what a waste of a candle, but there's still a little bit of light there. And that's what Jesus says when he looks at the Christian who has just a little bit of faith. Maybe a lot of smoke and a lot of commotion around it that really does no good. But there may be just a germ. There may be just a flicker. And we need to be gentle with those people who may have just a flicker. But the main thing I want to say to you tonight is that though true belief was hidden somewhere underneath Samson's long locks, his overconfidence in his hair, his misplaced faith in his hair left him in the end with very little to combat the wiles of the devil. You remember in Ephesians 6, Paul tells us that we need to take up the shield of faith with which we can extinguish the fiery arrows of the devil. Well, Samson, if you want to take that as an illustration, had a very small shield with him because his faith was focused only in one particular area of his life. As long as I don't cut my hair, everything's going to be fine. Left him with a very small shield. Big enough to fend off all of these Philistine garrisons as they came against him, but no match 
for the flaming arrows that Satan threw at him through Delilah's hourglass figure and her soft lips. He didn't have very much to defend himself with because his shield was so so small. His faith was so focused on one tiny object. What he was left without much help. Wherever the devil aims, if we have this large shield that affects every area of our life and that has Jesus as the hub and all the other pieces of metal attached to him, wherever the devil aims, Jesus is there to extinguish the darts. But if we're only focused in one area, if our faith only extends to part of our life, then there is much that is open to his darts. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. Let's say your faith in God is not mainly primarily ministered to you through your hair, but your faith in God primarily seems to come to you through overconfidence in a pastor. I hope that that's not the case for you. There's not great cause for that uh, standing in front of you tonight. But there are many people who do such things and put their confidence, all their confidence in God is funneled through one person. And for a while that may go well, but what happens when the hair gets cut? Or what happens when that pastor dies or leaves or falls into sin? Then you're left with nothing because all of your confidence in God has come through one single avenue, not from God Himself. And what if you're the person who has a faith in God, but all of what you seem to think God wants to give you is funneled just through Sunday mornings? Now, you're here on Wednesday nights, and so I know I'm preaching to the choir, but maybe Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights, and you're here, and you're always here. Lots of you are always here. But what if that's all that you get? What if everything is funneled through that one particular item, church attendance? Well, what happens when the devil comes at you on Monday if you're not alone with the Lord? What happens when he comes at you on Friday? It's not to say if you miss your quiet time one day that your life is over and the devil's going to kill you. It is to say, though, if you only pursue God through one particular little avenue, if you only see the grace of God coming to you through your hair or through your pastor or through your church attendance or through your quiet time, you may put all your faith in that. When that's not there, you are wide open to temptation. And that's what happened to Samson because his faith was misplaced. So, Samson's besetting sin led him to a dangerous woman. All of that happened to him because he had a misplaced faith and eventually all that led, episode 4, to a ruined life. Verses 18 to 25. Because Samson didn't curtail his sin, because he didn't confess it to the Lord, because he didn't seek help, because he didn't seem to love the Lord more than he loved his lust, Because he didn't come to God and trust Him wholly, Samson lost in these verses not only his hair, but also his strength. He lost his blessing. The Lord had been with him wherever he went, even in spite of all of his sins, and he lost that. He lost his eyes, verse 21, which might have been a good thing. They were the source of his problems in the beginning. It's funny how sometimes if we don't gouge out our eyes and cut off our hands, God will do it for us. He lost his freedom in verse 21. They brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze chains and he was a grinder in the prison. He lost, maybe worst of all, his self-respect in verse 25. They're there worshiping Dagon and they bring Samson out in the middle like a court jester. 
and make sport of him. Now, here was Samson in the prime of his life. He, he ruled as judge in Israel, we read in verse 31, for 20 years. He was apparently quite a young man when he first began to rule. So probably around 40 years old, Samson, in the prime of his life, in the time where he should have had enough wisdom and still had enough strength to be at the top of his game. Had it all, it seemed, at least in a secular mindset. Mindset, But because of his sin, he lost everything. He eventually lost his life. Now that story is not just the story of Samson. It's the story of modern American men and women everywhere. Some of you work with people who put on a smile at work, but you know they've lost it all because of their foolishness. They've lost their family. They've lost their um, loved ones. They've lost perhaps... Great financial uh, amounts, great amounts of money, foolish decisions. You hear stories of pastors who, because of their unwatchfulness and their pride, lose their ministries. Businessmen who, because they're too busy and they're neglecting their families because of their ambition, lose their wives and lose their children. Young women who lose their dignity and lose their future because they're loose morally. All sorts of people who fall away from the faith because of poor habits and neglect of the means of grace. It is very easy to seem to have it all and then to lose it all because you don't kill sin. I don't want to linger forever on the application to this because I hope it's not going to happen to you. But I do want to apply it briefly because none of us are immune to this. I remember being at the City Gospel Mission one day and there was a man probably about in his 40s who was wearing a nice white shirt that looked like two days ago it had been probably pressed. He was wearing uh, nice slacks and dress shoes, but his face was all disheveled and his hair was sticking everywhere and hadn't been washed. He had a nice pair of glasses. His beard was unshaved and he was homeless. And it was very clear that not too long ago he had not only been not homeless, but probably had a great deal of money and success. And somehow, I don't know how, but somehow this man lost all of it. It's very possible that it can happen to you or to I. If it happened to him, if it happened to Samson, it can happen to us. So I simply want to say to you that Samson at one time was a normal, happy young man. Living under his parents' roof, presumably doing the right things, and he lost it. More close to our culture, Britney Spears was at one time a normal teenage girl. Can you believe that? Elliot Spitzer was at one time an upstanding, well respected governor, and now he's lost everything. That divorced couple that you know was one time happily married. The homeless man was at one time in his bedroom with his wife watching television and thinking everything was well. Those people who are former members even of our church were at one time here every single week and somehow it all went away from them. Somewhere along the line, these people toyed with a besetting sin instead of killing a besetting sin. And they 
continued in their troubles and they countered their troubles instead of with faith in God and confession to God and coming to Christ, they countered them with their self-efforts perhaps or by going to experts of some sort or just by checking off a religious checklist. Yes, I've done this today or I've done this this week, but they never brought their sins to the cross of Christ. They never killed them with the gospel and they all ended up in Dagon's temple with Dagon's people making sport of them. Isn't that what happens? Isn't that what happens to the homeless man? Isn't that what happens to Elliot Spitzer? All of Satan's people just get a good laugh at them. And we are not immune. If we do not kill sin, it will kill us. And they will have a laugh and make sport of us like they did of Samson. We're not immune to losing it all. And so we need to be sure to kill sin. And we need to be sure then to turn in, to tune into this final episode, episode five, which is the hope giving one. I've called it a faithful God. There's all sorts of ugliness. There's a besetting sin. There's a dangerous woman. There's a misplaced faith and a ruined life. But at the end of it all, and really underneath it all, there's a faithful God in verses 26 through 31. One that we can come to and rely on. Just notice that here in this story, ugly as it is, as with almost all the other stories of the judges, God uses an unworthy sinner to rescue unworthy sinners. God uses an unworthy man to rescue unworthy people. It's a story of rescue, even as ugly as it is. Remember how the story began in chapter 13 two weeks ago? Let me read verse 1 to you, just so you remember how Samson's story begins. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And you know how it continues with Samson continually himself doing evil in the sight of the Lord and doing what was right in his own eyes. And yet, in spite of all of that sin that continues throughout the story, God rescued His people from the Philistines. Samson leaned against these pillars, bent his back, knocked the pillars over, and the whole temple with 3,000 Philistines fell. And the Israelites were again rescued from the power of their enemies. Now yes, in the midst of this story of great sin, there were chastisements. We read again in chapter 13, 1, that because the people sinned, God sold them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. But... In the end, we see that they weren't finally destroyed. And that's where our hope comes from. They weren't finally destroyed. And I simply want to close the story of Samson tonight by reminding you that the same can be said of us. If you have become a child of God by faith in Jesus, it is very possible for you to make a mess of your life. Don't doubt that for a moment. And it is very possible for you to end up, as it were, with your eyes gouged out in the temple of Dagon because whom the Lord loves he disciplines and if you won't gouge out your eyes he'll gouge them out for you but if you are a child of God by faith in Jesus it's also true that he will not finally destroy you Psalm 103 9 says he will not always strive with us nor will he keep his anger forever He strives with us and He is angry when we sin, but He won't keep His anger forever if we belong to Him. Because as was true with the Israelites, our Deliverer has come. 
Our deliverer has come. Samson's greatest moment is when he finally delivers the people with this loud cry before he dies. Let me die with the Philistines. That's his shining moment. Let me die with the Philistines. Here he stands amidst a mocking multitude of people scorning him and makes his life a willing sacrifice and rescues God's people from the Philistines. And what a reminder that one far greater than Samson stood among a mocking multitude and laid down his life as a willing sacrifice to rescue us not from the Philistines but from death so that whoever believes in him will not be finally destroyed but will have everlasting 